And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The message this evening is entitled, uh, Living Today in Light of Eternity. And I'm going to go back to a passage of scripture that we've looked at a couple of different times related to this study, as well as uh, a couple of other emphases that, that we have had in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So I'm going to read that passage here in just a moment if you want to make your way there. And then uh, we're going to move forward and cover a number of different scriptures as we have been looking at this topic of heaven and, and how we're supposed to be living in light of eternity, how it impacts today, not just uh, way out in the future. And we've covered a lot of ground in this study. Uh, we started with eternity past and the heavens, the concept of heaven in the Old Testament, uh, the body and the soul, and how that is comprised by God and given to us as a gift. What happens to believers at death, what we can expect when we draw our last breath here and enter into eternity, and then characteristics of the present heaven, or what we would refer to as the intermediate state, and then the return, resurrection, and judgment followed by the millennial reign of Jesus and the new heavens and the new earth. Then we focus more specifically on the new Jerusalem and the new earth and what life is going to be like in the new heavens and the new earth. And we're asking and answering this question uh, in this particular segment. How can we live today in light of eternity? How can our lives now be shaped and impacted by what we're anticipating in the future? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, Paul writes, Now we have this treasure in clay jars, so this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that Jesus' life may also be displayed in our mortal flesh. Verse 12, so then, death is at work in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith in keeping with what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak. For we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you. Indeed, everything is for your benefit so that as grace extends through more and more people, it may cause thanksgiving to increase to the glory of God. Now verse 16, therefore we do not give up, even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now we have the treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the glory of God that has been made known to us through the gospel. At the present, we live in these earthen vessels, our earthly bodies, and we, like the apostles were, are at times hard-pressed and perplexed 
persecuted and struck down when we follow Jesus. But Paul had one aim, and he wanted that one aim to be that the life of Jesus would be evident in him and in those who followed him, and that they would not lose heart even in the event of being hard-pressed and perplexed in all the things that happen as a result of following Jesus. And even though the outward man is perishing, the inward man is being renewed day by day, and that's by God's grace. So we do not focus on what is seen, just the temporal, but we focus on what is unseen, which is the eternal. Now, I've shared an excerpt with you a couple of different times in this study uh, from Johnny Erickson Tata's book, Heaven, Your Real Home, and I share another uh, this evening. And she wrote this in part, as Christians, you and I are not made for this world. Well, in one sense, we are. Our hands, feet, eyes, and ears equip us for the physical experiences on this planet made of water and dirt. Our ears process noise. Our eyes register sights, our noses detect odors, and our stomachs digest food. But we are also spirit. This makes for an incredible tension. As spiritual beings, you and I are not made for this world because this earth is temporal. We squirm and groan against the confines of time. The clock for us is an adversary. We live as pilgrims by faith and not by sight. And by faith, we live on a different plane in another dimension at a higher level than the earthly one. By faith, the rock-solid world becomes drained of substance and we see a heavenly meaning behind everything. We pilgrims walk the tightrope between earth and heaven, feeling trapped in time, yet with eternity beating in our hearts." Scripture mainly presents us with a view of life from the eternal perspective. Some call it the heavenly point of view, but I like to refer to it as the end of time view. And this perspective separates what is transitory from what is lasting. I think what she writes here puts in perspective very well this tension that we feel. We know God has placed us here on purpose to serve him, to live for his glory, but we know that this is not all that there is. So how do we keep our eyes focused on what is unseen while at the same time living in the realm of the seen? We've also looked at how in the future there's going to be that new heaven and the new earth and, and what that's going to mean for us as God's children. But in the meantime, How do we prepare for what's coming for us in the future? First of all, the light of eternity helps us shape our priorities. The light of eternity helps us shape our priorities. Now, everything that you do in this life relates to eternity. We've talked about in the judgment seat of Christ, how we'll be accountable for how we've lived our lives and how we've used our gifts. Uh, We have been entrusted with certain responsibilities by the Lord, and we will be rewarded accordingly and held accountable for how we have or haven't stewarded those things that he's entrusted to us. And eternity should shape the priorities of our spiritual lives. 
I want to read 2 Peter chapter 3 in verse 11 through 13, another passage of scripture that we have looked at several times through this study, but I come to it again. 2 Peter chapter 3 beginning in verse 11, since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness. As you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming, because of that day, the heavens will be dissolved with fire and the elements will melt with heat. But based on his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Now, Peter makes it clear that in light of these truths, we should live with holy conduct and righteousness. Listen to this quote by uh, Bo Reich, a, a commentator. The solar system and great galaxies, even space-time relationships, will be abolished. All elements which make up the physical world will be dissolved by heat and utterly melt away. It is a picture in which an astonishing degree corresponds to what might actually happen according to the modern theories of the physical universe, meaning that God tells us what is in reality going to happen. It's not just a theory that someone has come up with. What does that mean for us? The world as we know it will not continue forever. Jesus is going to return one day and everything will change. The old earth, broken by sin, will be replaced with a new heaven and a new earth. So we know with certainty that that day is coming. It, it, it's a, an absolute assurance because God tells the truth and God keeps his promises. And you better be certain also that God has already marked the day on the calendar when that's going to take place. We don't know when that date is, but God already knows and he's going to bring it to pass. The king is on the way. He will return. And because God is the sovereign creator and his return is sure, that should motivate us to live pure lives. And the priorities that God sets for us in his word are the priorities that we should set for our lives. Let's think about these just for a moment from both a material aspect and a spiritual aspect. We know that God gives us provision in this life. He gives us things to use and to enjoy. And the scripture is clear where we're to lay up for ourselves treasures, and that's to be in heaven because Jesus said that if we lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven, then moth and rust won't destroy and thieves won't break in and steal. But if we lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven, that's where our heart is going to be. That's where our focus is going to be. And storing up treasures for yourself on earth will yield a poor return on your investment. Now, this past week or so, uh, I've been cleaning out uh, some storage uh, units that we have. Uh, we've collected some things for various reasons, and uh, Nathan was preparing to to move to Morgantown for graduate school, and we had some furniture and some other things that we were moving around. And when I got in those storage units, uh, it, it, it's good for you to do that, uh, whether it's your garage or your attic or whatever. I cleaned an attic out a while back. And listen, I have very, very small attachments to anything material. 
So you don't want me cleaning your stuff out if you ever want to see it again, because it's just not all that important to me. But at any rate, I was thinking about the, the craze of the growth of the storage unit industry. Now, this will blow your mind, but self-storage in America is a $40 billion industry. There are more than 50,000 storage facilities in the United States. I'm not talking about units. There's millions of units potentially, but there are actually 50,000 facilities where there are these storage facilities. Two billion square feet of rentable space. And I would venture to say that many people who have stuff in these storage units, number one, if they needed it, they would have already been using it. But many people don't even know what's in there. And I know that myself. I start pulling stuff out and I'm like, oh, I forgot I put that in there. And, and start tossing stuff and cleaning things out. But the thought that came to my mind as I was thinking about that is how we collect this earthly stuff a lot of times that we think is so important. And let me just give you a little insight in what's going to happen into most of the stuff that you think is really important right now. Maybe you've got multiple units. I don't know. Maybe you got things that you hold so close and dear to your heart that you think they are eternally valuable. I don't know that either. That's up to you and what your family decides to do. But let me tell you what's going to happen to most of your stuff when it's all said and done. Somebody's going to look at it, and they're not going to know the attachment of why you thought it was important. And they're going to put it in the back of a truck, and they're going to go somewhere like the Sycamore landfill, and they're going to dump it in the dumpster, and they're going to drive back, and they're going to get the other load. That's how it's going to go. Now... I know that hurts your feelings. I'm sorry. I apologize ahead of time, but I'm just telling you, you got to be sure why you're holding on to stuff that you think is so incredibly valuable. You remember Jesus told an important story in Luke chapter 12, where he said that life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. There's a very rich and successful man that had an abundance of crops and he had lived as though life and security were all about what he could accumulate. He got so well to do that he decided he was going to tear down the old barns and just build more and just expand his holdings for his surplus grain. And then he was going to just enjoy his riches and take it easy and eat, drink, and be merry. You remember what God said of him? You fool. This night, your life will be demanded of you. Now, let me ask you this question. If your life were demanded of you tonight, will you have lived in such a way in relationship to material things that you've held on to them loosely, you've kept them in perspective, and you've adopted a mindset that it's not about acquiring stuff, that's not where happiness and meaning and security come from, or have you spent more of your time holding on to things that are not eternally valuable. Now, there's nothing wrong with enjoying stuff. I know some of you collect certain things and, and all that goes along with that. That's, that's not my personality, but I get it that that's some of your personality and I'm not trying to send you on a guilt trip by any measure, but I'm telling you, keep that stuff in perspective because everything in this world is temporary and our priorities should be shaped by what is eternal. And an accurate view of eternity will cause us to hold everything loosely. Don't be arrogant. Put your, don't put your hope in wealth. 
It's uncertain, it's unreliable, and it's unable to deliver what truly matters. There's a gospel song by Ponder uh, Sykes and Wright uh, that's entitled Holding Things Close. And it says in part, holding things close and letting things go. What should we cling to? It's so hard to know. Hold to the love and then to the hope because everything else is all wrong. We keep holding things close and letting things go. So you got to determine what's important to hold close and what's important to let go. Our lives ought to reflect eternity as a priority. Spiritually, our lives should reflect eternity as our priority with God. Now, secondly, the light of eternity helps us persevere in times of temptation. The light of eternity helps us persevere in times of temptation. Now, I want to read a passage here uh, from uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, and I want to read beginning in verse 7. Here's what the Bible says. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 7. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. And just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. Now, do we live our lives like it could be over today? Or do we live as though Jesus could return tonight? Either could be true. We don't know. So what are we called to do? We're called to purify ourselves. That's what the scripture says. Purify yourselves in preparation of his coming. And when you purify yourself in preparation for his coming, then that can deliver you from the stronghold of sin. What is it specifically that helps us persevere in times of temptation? Well, he gives us some ideas here, beginning in verse 7. He mentions specifically prayer. So a focused prayer life can help us persevere in times of temptation. He says, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. You know what it means to be clear-minded? It means to be in your right mind. It means to have your mind filled with the truth of God's word, and that will cause you to be clear-minded. It means to have a biblical worldview. Now, how much more important could that be in the day that we're living in? Friends, we are living in a time of the deconstruction of any societal, social, or spiritual norm that the world might have known over the past 2,000 years And the very foundation is under attack. Let me give you an example of this, particularly as it would have influenced our young people. Um, I read just today that uh, Demi Lovato has come out now and is identifying as non-binary and has changed her pronouns to they or them. Now, Demi Lovato, of course, originally became prominent through uh, Disney and Uh, singing and some other uh, things that she was involved in. And uh, you might even know what this even means. I I read it just to be sure I was accurately describing it. Non-binary refers to someone who does not identify only as a man or a woman, 
the traditional gender binary, they could identify as both a man and a woman in between the two genders are not a part of any gender category at all. Non-binary can also be used as an umbrella term encompassing identities such as agender, bigender, genderqueer, or gender fluid, according to the Human Rights Campaign. And then here's what Lovato said. I want to take this moment to share something very personal with you. The past year and a half, I've been doing some healing and some self-reflective work. And through this work, I've had this revelation that I identify as non-binary. With that said, I'll officially be changing my pronouns to they and them. I feel this best represents the fluidity I feel in my gender expression and allows me to feel most authentic and true to the person I both know I am and am still discovering. Can you imagine the, the confusion of young people in particular who are not raised with a foundation of truth when they encounter this type of thing from wildly popular people in culture? How profoundly important is it that they have some type of foundation so that they might be clear-minded? Friends, that is absolutely insanity. That is not of God. It's not even in the same category as God or from God. It is utter confusion. Now, most of us are not coming from that um, extreme of a perspective, but we better understand this culture that we live in, the thinking, the um, worldview, the framework that it's coming from politically, societally, and be sure that we have a good foundation and that those who we are responsible for discipling do as well and also have a good foundation to be able to even try to evangelize people in this type of culture because it's becoming more and more complex. We need to have a clear mind, but it also says we need to have a self-controlled life. Self-controlled is sober or free from intoxication, both literally and from, spiritually, uh, from spiritual intoxicants. Um, Lord, help us to have a clear mind and to be self-controlled. When not only is our prayer life important in, in persevering in times of temptation, but we need to have a life that loves others deeply. So he says in verse 8, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Peter uses the word deep, or it can be translated also as fervently to describe the depth of the believer's love for one another. Uh, fervent was an athletic word used of muscle stretching or straining, a person running with stretched muscles and giving uh, maximum effort. I like the way Warren Wiersbe put it. He said, this love should be fervent, and the word pictures an athlete that is straining to reach the ultimate goal. It speaks of an eagerness and an intensity. Christian love is something we have to work at, just like an athlete works on his skills. It's not a matter of an emotional feeling, though that is included, but of dedicated will. Christian love means that we treat others the way God treats us, obeying his commandments in the word. And I think Wayne Grudem also has something relevant to say here. He says, where love abounds in a fellowship of Christians... There are many small offenses and even large ones that are forgotten. And where love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion. Every action is liable to misunderstanding 
and conflicts abound. So if we want to endure, persevere in times of temptation, we need a good focused prayer life. We need to love one another as God calls us to love one another. We need to practice hospitality without complaining, according to verse 9, without grumbling. Did you know the idea of practicing hospitality there is uh, a love of strangers, literally? What did Jesus do? He sent his disciples to various towns with the gospel, engaging people. So I think this has a mission application to it. And they were often hosted by strangers who were willing to welcome in uh, the believers. And maybe he's exhorting us here to, to be supportive of the work of the mission. I think that certainly could be part of it. And then we need a life that uses spiritual gifts to glorify God. Where we read there in 1 Peter, it says in verse 10, each one should use whatever gift he has to serve others. And that should be the goal of our lives. Whatever gifts God, give, God has given you, you want to use it not just for yourself, but you want it to use it to serve others. Now, it's easy along the way to get discouraged, to get defeated, and to really struggle with persevering as we should. But God's given us his spirit to encourage us. He's given us one another to spur us on. He's given us his word so that we actually know what's right and wrong. We have some concept of reality. And he wants us to be faithful to the end. I shared this illustration with you each year. About four dozen athletes gather in Minnesota for uh, the St. Croix uh, 40, a winter ultra marathon. This is amazing, but... Uh, at any rate, they embark on a 40-mile ultramarathon at night in January in Minnesota while pulling a sled packed with 30-plus pounds of supplies. And in this environment, you can literally die from standing still for too long. Over 25% of the runners will not finish the race. Most of them will drop out at a very interesting point. Participants reach mile marker 24 between 10 p.m. and midnight. And if a runner plans to take on the last 16 miles, he or she must prove that they have the skills to stay alive in case of an emergency. They must stop, set up their boat-shaped, uh, body-shaped tent that envelops their sleeping bag, climb into the makeshift bed, wait for about 30 seconds, and then pack it up before they all leave. Now, that doesn't seem all that challenging, but when temperatures are near zero or even below and you're covered in sweat and coming out of a sleeping bag, uh, the temptation at that moment would be to quit. And yet 75% of the people who start it actually finish. And that's pretty phenomenal from a physical uh, standpoint. And from a spiritual standpoint, we have many obstacles. We have many enemies. And yet God tells us in the face of that temptation, don't quit at checkpoint 24. That's where the runners who quit, quit. Checkpoint 24. Don't quit at checkpoint 24. Press on toward eternity. And if you're living by these things, it will help you persevere in times of temptation. And then third, the light of eternity helps us have perspective in times of suffering. I return to the passage of Scripture that I opened with tonight 
in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, with a particular emphasis on verses 16 to 18. The Apostle Paul was writing, he was speaking from his own personal experience. He had been imprisoned, persecuted, beaten, shipwrecked, left for dead. I mean, you name it, the man had experienced it. And all that is enough to be depressed and to lose hope. Yet Paul had hope. What was his hope based on? His hope was based on the fact that just as God raised Jesus from the dead, we too will be raised from the dead. So why would Paul emphasize the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead and that we too will be raised from the dead someday? The reason that he would emphasize this is because this life is not all there is. And Paul's saying, listen, in light of what you're experiencing in the face of the worst of suffering, don't quit, have the right perspective about the suffering, and eternity in heaven is just as certain as life on this planet is. And I think that's why he begins the whole section with the word therefore. It's because he's pointing back. And when he's saying this is what can be a reality in your life, it's because of what God has promised in Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis wrote, all of eternity can be compared to a continuous line that has no beginning and no end. And all of human history is like a tiny dot on the line. And inside the dot of human history, there is a microscopic dot that represents your life here on this earth. And that's true, and it is symbolically. How are you living inside of that microscopic dot that represents your life within a larger dot, which represents the line that is symbolic of all of history and all of eternity. Troubles are referred to, amazingly, as light and momentary. Romans chapter 8 and verse 18 says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. You say, where will we go to find an example of how to live in times of suffering? We look no further than Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate example of what it is to live in the midst of suffering and yet to keep your perspective on what ultimately matters. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 2, and I'll read verse 2 and 3. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The joy that was set before him. Now, I believe suffering reveals temporal pleasures for what they ultimately are. They are counterfeits disguised as treasures many times. Even when they're the best of blessings and they're not counterfeit in that sense, they're still just temporary. They're not intended to be forever. And the grace of suffering does something unique in us. It pushes us to seek something that is greater than this world. Suffering causes us to, to lift up our eyes to the eternal hope. And if we lift up our eyes to the eternal hope, 
then we're going to be anchored in the character of God and we're going to be guided by the word of God and we're going to be empowered by the spirit of God and we're going to live lives that honor the son of God. And that's in a huge contrast to much of what the world is pushing our way and telling us is right and true when in fact it's wrong and it's false. And it is ultimately extremely temporary. And we can endure knowing that one day we will experience fully the presence of Christ. So suffering comes as a result of taking up our cross and following Jesus. We're strengthened by experiencing a greater oneness with Christ until the day we find eternal rest in his presence and in the presence of his glory. So I ask you this question as I come toward a close tonight. You need to ask yourself this. Am I certain that I'm going to heaven? Am I absolutely certain? Like if tonight was it, tomorrow you were gone from the planet, spiritually speaking, would you for certain be in the presence of God? The only way that we can know that for sure is if our faith is in Christ and Christ alone. I share this excerpt with you from Paul Ennis, and uh, I'm going to come toward the close of the message tonight. He says, the ultimate question is of utmost importance. When my eyelids shut for the last time on this old earth, do I know that I will awaken in heaven? The answer rests on whom I am trusting. Jesus Christ alone is the way of salvation that gives us entrance into heaven. He is the one who took our sins upon himself, paying the price and making atonement for our sins when he died on the cross as our substitute, thereby satisfying the holiness of God. So the key question is, am I trusting Jesus Christ alone for my salvation? It's the most important question that anybody could ever answer. Now or in eternity, am I trusting in Jesus Christ alone for my salvation? And if you are, you can know for certain that you're going to heaven. But not just that you're going to heaven, but that your life in the here and now will be driven by biblical priorities, materially and spiritually, You will persevere in times of temptation. Your worldview will be shaped so that as these lies come at you constantly or these lies come at your children, you can see them for what they are. And then ultimately you can persevere in the suffering and the sin-fallen world. And you can look to Jesus as your example to do so. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray.